as we've been looking through the life of David, there's two names that come to mention when you think of the life of David. You think of the story of Goliath, where David probably achieved his greatest victory, and you think of the story of Bathsheba, where David probably experienced his greatest defeat. I actually preached this uh, series of this passage of Scripture during the Christmas holidays. Probably none of you remember that, but I preached on this as we went through the, the women and the genealogy of Jesus, and we came to that story of Bathsheba. But how could I go through the life of David without talking about David's relationship with Bathsheba? It has to be dealt with. David has been king in Jerusalem for 20 years. He's been king over both, both nations. He's about 50 years old uh, at this point in his life. David has everything. Everything is going great in his life. But we find out that David is probably one of the most difficult and dangerous periods in his life. You see, that's the way it is with many of us. When you get to a point in your life and you have pretty much everything provided for you, you say, man, I am on cruise control now. That's when you've got your most susceptible to sin. That's when it begins to get into you. When you think that now you can enjoy the fruits of all your labor, that's when Satan will come in and tempt you and stray you away. What we are about to read is one of the black stains on David's life. This story, this event will stick with David the rest of his life, and it will have an impact on the rest of his life, good and bad. What is it about this story that so enamors people? What is it about the story of David and Bathsheba that draws people to it? It's a story that's been repeated over and over down through the centuries. Hollywood has glamorized it. Surely it is, it is a, that, 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 that scandal of temptation, that, that, that lure of temptation that draws people to this story. The thing we need to understand about this is we are not immune from temptation. Every one of us to beware of the lure of sin in our lives. It doesn't have to be sex. It could be money. It could be power. It could be a position. It could be prestige, whatever. It could be popularity. We're all lured by the power of sin. It's anything that lures us away from what God desires for us. So we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, and we're going to look at the story as it unfolds for us this morning. We're going to look at it under the beware the lure of sin. Now remember, this is all in the context of developing a heart for God. We want to have a heart for God. We want to be like David, who was a man after God's own heart. So we want to learn from him things that we should not do and also things that we should do. So let's look at this passage. The first thing we want to see is the deception of sin. Look at verse 1, chapter 11. It says, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war. This sets the stage for what's about to happen. David was not supposed to be in Jerusalem. David was supposed to be out with the army. That's what it says. It says it was springtime at a time when kings go off to war. David is a king. He's supposed to be going off to war, leading his army. For some reason or other, David decides to stay. Maybe his men persuaded him, hey, David, you know, we're okay. We got this. Maybe he was encouraged by his family to stay there. We do not know. But we do know from Scripture that it was a time when kings were not supposed to be in the castle, in the fortress. They were supposed to be out with the army. 
Verse 2 tells us what takes place. Verse 2 says, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with what David was doing. This is perfectly normal in, in, Middle, in the Middle Eastern culture. They would have a rooftop above. They would walk around the rooftop because it was the cool of the evening. It's when they would get the, the best air and the best circulation. David was not on the rooftop looking for love in all the wrong places. He wasn't there. He was doing what was natural. But as he's on the rooftop, he looks over and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. Why she was there, we do not know. But she was on the rooftop bathing. It wasn't just any woman. This is the wife of Uriah. Uriah was one of his mighty men. He was one of David's most trusted soldiers. But not only was, you, was it Bathsheba married to Uriah, it was also the daughter of one of David's greatest generals and also was the granddaughter of one of David's greatest advisors. Bathsheba was in, in that, that sphere of influence. And I want you to notice as we go through this, the connection of words in verses 2, 3, and 4. I won't read the whole passage. Let me just kind of point it out. It says in, in verse 2, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. In verse 2, it also says she was beautiful. David sent for her. Then you skip down to verse 4 and it says he slept with her. Some versions say he took. So he saw, he sent, he took. Folks, that is a sequence of sin. That is the way sin works in our life. We see something, we want it, we take it. That is the sequence of sin. See, the problem of sin is not one of the imagination. We don't have to imagine new ways to sin. All we got to do is follow the formula. This is the way it always happens. It's always basically the same way. Sin is doing what we want to do and disregarding what God tells us to do and disregarding the effects and the aftermath on the lives of other people when we sin. We see, we sin, and we take. That's what it is. That's the, that's the sequence of sin, any type of sin that we commit. You see, David forgot who he was. David forgot that he was the king of Israel. He forgot that he was a man after God's own heart. He forgot that he'd been anointed by the Holy Spirit. He forgot that the Holy Spirit was empowering him to be a man after God's own heart. And in a moment of sexual arousal, David forgot everything that he was. It's just a one-night stand. Nobody's going to know. Uh, he, he, can, he can cover over it. As a matter of fact, David takes her... He has a sexual relation with this woman, and he sends her back. It must have been exciting for David. You know, probably David didn't feel like a sinner when he engaged in this activity. As a matter of fact, he may have thought, you know, if God didn't want me to commit this sin, he wouldn't put her on the rooftop bathing. I know, that seems warped, doesn't it? But you will be surprised how many people come up with an excuse. I knew a couple in the church I used to serve that they both committed adultery. And the woman was heard to say, said, well, this must be from God because we're so in love. That's warped theology. It's warped thinking. But you'll be surprised at how people justify their actions when they're caught in the middle of something like that. Sin has a way of creating excitement. It has a, a way of creating a thrill. Let's be honest. If sin wasn't fun, we wouldn't want to do it. 
It has a way of appealing to us. It has a way of, of being exciting. There's just something about the chase. There's just something about, about behind the scenes, doing what others do not know, doing what others cannot see. There's just something about that David's excited. So David has his little fleeing with Bathsheba. Then he sends her back. Everything seems fine. He seems to be untouched by any damage of this relationship that he had until a short time later, David receives a little note. Just three little words. That's all it is. It's a, it's a words that will change his life forever. It is a note that sends many a man falling to his knees. And I'm not talking about in prayer. What did it say? I am pregnant. Guess what? Now everybody's going to know. Everybody's going to know about this little discretion. David did not get away with his sin. Let me tell you, folks, there's always consequences to the sins that we do. So David sets out to cover up his sin. He has a choice. He can confess his sin or he can cover it up. David decides, I'm going to cover it up. I'm not going to confess, I'm going to cover up. And that leads to the devastation of sin. If you read verse 6 all the way to the end of the chapter, you'll see how David tries to cover up his sin. Remember, David is a man after God's own heart, but he makes every effort to cover his sin. So here's what he thinks. You know, he's sharp. He's smart. He's beginning to rationalize, how can I cover this up? What can I do to, to hide this? So he comes up with a plan. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll send for Uriah. He'll come back. He'll have a relationship with his wife, a sexual relationship with his wife. She will, uh, it will look like she's become pregnant and nobody will know. Great. That's what he does. So he sends for Uriah. He brings him in and they engage in a little small talk. You know, hey, how's the battle going? What's going on here? Just a little small talk. And then David encourages him to go home. The implication is clear. The implication is that he'll go home, he'll have sexual relations with his wife, and nobody will know the difference. However, Uriah does not return. Don't you just hate it when, when, when people will, will not follow your perfect plan to cover up your indiscretions? Don't you just hate that? David asked, how'd it go? I want you to look at Uriah's response. Look at verse 11. The ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How can I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Wow. What an example of loyalty. What an example of faithfulness. This is a man of God. He said, I would never do that when the Lord's army is out there fighting, and here I am engaging in, in, in pleasure, I would never do such a thing. David realizes his plan's not going to be as easy as he thought. Uh, this guy's not doing what he's supposed to be doing, so he has to come up with a, with a new plan. So here's what he decides to do. He says, I'll throw a party. I'll throw a party. I will invite Uriah to my party. I'll get him drunk. He'll get drunk, then he'll go home, and he'll lie with his wife. They'll have sexual relations, and everything will be fine. This was David's plan. So, so he, so he throws, throws the party. But the thing is that Uriah proves to be a better man drunk than David is sober. 
Uriah doesn't follow the plan. Instead, what does he do? He sleeps at the he sleeps at the at the at the uh, palace. He stays behind with the men. David said, "Man, I've got a problem. Uriah is not cooperating with me." I've got a problem. What am I going to do to solve this problem? I have to cover up this sin. I cannot let this sin out. If I do, it will be a national disgrace. It will be a scandal. So David is desperate. So he devises another plan. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send Joab. I'm going to send Uriah back with a sealed letter to Joab. And I'm going to tell Joab, the captain of the army, put Uriah in the front lines and then withdraw all the men from around him. So that's what he does. You probably know the rest of the story, don't you? Even if you haven't read it, you know what's going to happen. Joab does exactly what David tells him to do, and Uriah dies. His life is ended. You see what David's done? He's went from a sexual affair to murder. Sin has a way of producing other sins. Whether you want it to or not, it leads you down a path that you can't return from. You never know what you may do if you continue in the path you are going. Some of you are being lured by sin this morning. You're being tempted and you're being lured by sin. You have in your mind what you're going to do already. You're playing it out in your mind. I can do this, this, and this. You see, the devil never tips his hand. Trust me on this. The devil never tips, your, tips his hand where that sin is going to take you. He never lets you know where pornography will take you a year, five, ten years from when you begin engaging in it. The devil never tips his hand what a little drug addiction will do in your life. The devil never tips his hand what uh, alcohol addiction will do to your life later on. And God, the devil never tips his hand to an adulterer aware that adultery is going to lead him. He never does. He just says, just engage in it. Just enjoy it while you can. After Uriah is murdered, in verse 27, David sends for Bathsheba. He marries her. She has a son. It's over. David has been able to cover up his sin. Now, he had to kill somebody to do it. But at least he covered up his sin. Until we get to the last part of verse 27. Notice what it says. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Never think your sins, you get away with them. Never think that, you, that your, your sin is pleasing to the Lord. Uh, you cannot justify your actions. God is never going to justify what you do. God is never pleased when we choose to sin. Just because you are developing a heart for God, don't think you're going to be excused when you commit some sin. It doesn't work that way. Well, we do not know how much, uh, you know, how much is going to happen in this passage. But the thing we need to understand is that David thought he hid everything in his life. But there is a God in heaven, and he knows all things. He sees all things. There's not a dark place you can go that God cannot see you. 
There's not a place that you can hide far enough from God that God cannot find you. The Bible says your sins will find you out. Some of you don't know it, but you are on the verge of being found out. You're on the verge of being found out for your sins. You cannot hide from God. It's just a matter of days, just a matter of weeks, and you will be found out. We don't know how much time happens between chapters 11 and chapter 12. We have no way of knowing. But during this time, David plays the hypocrite. He lives a lie. He puts on an act. He pretends that everything is, is, is all right. Matter of fact, David wrote some psalms during this period of his life. And if you go back and examine those psalms, they're psalms of sadness and, and depression. Matter of fact, you can even find out that David was not a happy man during this time. His relationship, his fellowship, and his commitment to God was, was shattered. David had a hard time worshiping. David had a hard time praying. There's even evidence that David became physically sick during this time. And then one day, chapter 12, verse 1 says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. You remember Nathan, don't you? Nathan was the, was the prophet. David, Nathan was, was the preacher. Nathan was, was a friend of David who would sometimes come to David's house, come to David's palace, and they would talk about spiritual things. They'd make plans, and they would dream together. He was kind of a spiritual mentor to David. But Nathan had not been there in several months. I can, I can only imagine why. He hadn't been there for several months. But finally, Nathan shows up. But he doesn't offer the customary greeting to David. Instead, he delivers a sermon. Don't you hate it when preachers do that? <laughs> you know, they, they, just, they preach a sermon. But he really doesn't preach a sermon. What, what, what he does is he, he, he tells a story. Listen to the story in verses 1 through 4. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. How did David respond? He was livid. He was infuriated at this. He was angry. But what David didn't get is that the spear was already at David's throat. It was already there. Thank God for Nathan. Thank God for preachers that aren't afraid to tell the truth. Thank God for men of the Lord who stand up and say, this is what you did. David hears another message that lets him know the game is up. It's over for you, David. You may have hidden it from man, but you did not hide what you did from God. He was caught. What was that message that he heard? You are the man. David was caught. He says, you are the man. Is there somebody here that needs to hear those words? 
You are the man. You are the woman. You are the person. How many of us need to hear those words? The reason you're in this situation, the reason you're in these consequences because of direct result of your actions. You are the person. You see, the Word of God gets personal. It always gets personal. We're really good at seeing and, and talking about the sins of others. We like to talk about you know, somebody else's sin all the time. Well, so-and-so did that. Well, she did this. He did that. We have talk shows that make a fortune off of other people's sins. I mean, we've come great at talking about that. We've become real good sin watchers, haven't we? Pointing out all the little sins and all the little flaws and all the little errors of, of somebody else. Well, she has sinned. He has sinned. Uh, they have sinned. But let me tell you something. The gospel gets real personal. The gospel says, no, you've sinned. The gospel confronts us on a daily basis and says, no, you are the one that has sinned. You have done it. You have to face up to your own situation before God. So Nathan preaches a sermon. It's a great sermon. It's very moving. You can read it in verses, uh, verses 8 and following, all the way down to verse 12. Uh, he basically says this. He says, uh, God tells uh, David through Nathan, he said, David, I did everything for you. Uh, where you are today, David, is because of my blessings upon your life. I, I gave you power. I gave you prestige. I gave you popularity. I gave you wealth. I, 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 call, I, I let you build great, great kingdom and great palaces. Everything I did was for you. And David, if that wasn't enough, I would have done more for you, David. Why did you do this thing? Why did you do it? And verse 13 is the turning point in David's life. David finally says, I have sinned against the Lord. Once David makes that confession, he discovers there is deliverance. There is forgiveness for his sins, which leads to that third truth that we reveal in this passage, the deliverance from sin. Do you know why David was a man after God's own heart? Because when David was confronted with his sin, he confessed his sin. He did not blame someone else. David did not say, I had a difficult childhood. You know, I was abused as a kid. He didn't say, it's my genetic makeup. This is just who I am as a person. He didn't say, well, you know, I'm a sex addict, so, so I can't help myself. He acknowledged that he was responsible. And here's the truth we need to glean from this passage. You are personally responsible for the choices you make in the here and the now. You are responsible. And I, I'm telling you, we are living in a society where we find everybody else in the world to blame, but we never accept personal responsibility for our actions. Never. We need to start looking and say, we are responsible for our situations. We are responsible. You can't blame it on your past. You can't blame it on others. You've got to eventually hone up and say, I've done it. During this time, David composed Psalm 51. It is probably the greatest psalm in all 150 of them. I challenge you, go look at Psalm 51. It is a psalm of confession. It is a psalm of forgiveness. It is a psalm of grace. Read Psalm 51. Verse 13 
David hears another word, a word that would change his life. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. Oh, what a relief must have came over David. He must have felt that a burden had been lifted from him. But I want you to notice something about this statement. Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sins. But wait a minute. He didn't say, you have to do some sacrifices. He didn't say, go and give some money. He didn't say, go and do some good deeds. David was probably already doing those things. He was making sacrifices. He was doing good deeds. He was giving money. But that wasn't what it took. He found out that God could take away his sins. And David learned the truth that he wrote about it in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. He said this, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Do you know the forgiveness that God offers? Do you know the joy of his salvation? Do you know the joy of the grace that God puts over your sins? Listen, many of us never experience forgiveness in our lives. Not really. We never really experience forgiveness in our life. You know why? Because we do not have a broken spirit and a contrite heart. We ask God to forgive us of our sins, but we have no intention of leaving our sins. We have no intention of leaving our lifestyle. We have no intention of making any changes, so we never experience the forgiveness of God. Because God knows what we're going to do. We never do. What is it? It's a broken spirit. When we have a broken spirit, it means that we're no longer in rebellion to God. It's a person who gives himself to God. He said, God, I'm broken. I'm contrite. God, I'm yours. Whatever you want to do with me, God, I'm yours. And man, the minute we do that, forgiveness is offered. True forgiveness can be experienced no matter who you are, no matter what situation you've been in. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 says this, if we confess our sins, that word confess is homologeo, to say the same thing about them that God says about them. If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Listen, that applies to all people. It applies to the unbeliever. If you are a person here today and you do not have a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, guess what? You can be forgiven of your sins. All you got to do is come to Jesus. And say, Jesus, I can't forgive myself, but I know you can. I know you can forgive me. But it applies to believers as well. That passage in 1 John 1, 9. If you're a believer, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but you find yourself straying and and tripping up and, and, and falling into sin. Guess what? Just confess your sins. God is faithful. God is just. He'll cleanse you. He'll forgive you of all unrighteousness and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It applies to sinner and believer and unbeliever alike. Remember, David was a man after God's own heart. No one is described like David in the Bible. But he sinned. And when he sinned, he confessed it to God and God forgave him. You can do the same thing in your own life. You can do it. 
The Lord can take away your sin if you have a sincere heart. But listen, just because God takes away your sin, it doesn't mean you have to live with the consequences. You still have to, you're not free from the consequences. You still have to live with the consequences. Look at verse 14. But, because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. David learned the consequences. But I want you to pay attention to the reason that David had to pay the consequences. It wasn't because he murdered Uriah. It wasn't because he had a sexual sin with Bathsheba. It wasn't because he tried to cover up his sin. What does the scripture say? Because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. The reason that David had to live with the consequences is because he brought shame to the name of the Lord. That's the reason. The Philistines and all the enemies of the people of Israel, they looked at David, a man after God's own heart, who was supposed to be leading people to God and not away from God. They said, he's no different than we are. Why should we follow his God? That's why David had to suffer the consequences. Because he brought shame to the name that he proclaimed. So many of us fail to see this truth. As followers of Jesus Christ, our sinful behavior brings shame to the name we proclaim. Oh yeah, we're remorseful. And we're sad when we experience the consequences of our sins. We're sad because what it does for us, broken homes, shattered lives, lost jobs, broken marriages. We grieve and we're saddened, but do we show remorse or sorrow for what we've done to our witness? That's the reason David had to suffer the consequences. Because it affected his ability to be a beacon. It affected his ability to be salt. It affected his ability to be light in a world that was a desperate need of the truth that David possessed. That there is a God and he loves you. And he loves you. The same is true for us. Every time we give in the temptation, every time we, we give in to the, the lure of sin, we are telling God that we love our sin more than we love him. Every time. And it hurts our testimony. It affects our abilities to be beacons of light in the world. But I want you to know that you can find forgiveness today. You can gain a fresh encounter with God. All you have to do is in, in total humility Come to God and confess your sins. And God will forgive you of all your sins. Come before him today and say, I no longer want to live for myself. I want to live for you. Help me, Jesus. Help me to be all that I can be in Christ's name. Help me, Lord. Be all that I can be for the glory of God. You can make that decision today. In a moment, we're going to have a time when you get to respond to what you've heard.
You know, I don't know what path you're walking. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. I don't know what's happening in your life. Most of the time, I don't even know what's happening in mine. But I know this. There is no sin you've ever committed that God cannot forgive you for. There's no place that you've ever been that God can't bring you back. God loves you with a love that is unfailing because God has loved you since the foundations of the world. And he knew in advance what you were going to do. You know why I know that? Because when Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, all of your sins were in the future. Every one of them. And so when you sit there and say, well, God can forgive me for my past, but he can't forgive me for what I'm doing now. That's an anathema. That does not work because every sin you ever committed was in the future. Listen, God can forgive you for your past. He can forgive you for your present. And he can forgive you for your future. But you've got to submit your life to him. And instead of having God look at you as, 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 instead of you looking at God as your judge, which is what he will be, it says it's appointed in a man wants to die after that, the judgment, the judgment before God. It says, well, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. They either do it willingly or unwillingly, but they're going to do it when they acknowledge that. Or you come to him in faith and said, I accept you by faith in Jesus Christ and I'm saved by grace because of that. Then you get the relationship with God as father. You see, he's no longer your judge. Now he's father. And then when you stand in front of him as a judge, there he is in his judicial robes. And he stands before you and he says, I recognize you. He steps out from behind the bench, takes off his robes, and he goes, I'll take his punishment. Give it to me. Because he's your father and he's not your judge. Why? Because his judgment fell upon his son, Jesus Christ. He said, him who had no sin became sin for us so that through him we might experience the righteousness of God. Do you know that Jesus today? Do you know forgiveness for your sins? You can. Whatever God is leading you to do, maybe you need a, a relationship with Jesus Christ. We can tell you how to do that. Maybe you say, I need to be a part of a church home. We'd love to have you be a part of this church if that's where God is leading you. Maybe you need to recommit your life to Christ. Maybe, you know, maybe it's time to suck up your pride a little bit and just humbly come over and say, you know, God, I, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I am bringing shame to your name by the lifestyle I'm living. Come right here to the front, kneel before God and say, God, I confess it to you. You don't have to confess it to me. You don't have to confess anything to me. I'm not a priest. But we do have one that will listen to you. That's why we can come boldly to the throne of grace and receive mercy and grace because we can go straight to God. Maybe some of you need to do that this morning.